as you know, what, what we've done with Hebrews is we didn't start at the beginning and preach through. We started in the middle, got the main points, and then we fanned out. So that's why we're back in chapter 4. And um, one of the main things that I want to keep emphasising from this is that we don't have a conditional covenant with God. Jesus fulfilled that conditional covenant, the old covenant. He kept every term, paid all the price, took all the penalties and completely fulfilled with it. And now that is in God's filing drawer in his dealt with drawer. He's done it. We don't have that sort of covenant. And so we need to learn to stop behaving like we had. What we have is not a conditional contract, but an inheritance. An inheritance that we get to share in because we're part of God's family, we're heirs to that inheritance, and it's ours to use. And you, all you can do with an inheritance is you can leave it on the table or you can take it and use it. You can receive it on, or just leave it there. You can believe it or you can receive and, and if you believe it, you'll receive it. If you don't, you won't. That's how an inheritance works. That's what we have. And, and, to, and to, to live in the light of that enables and releases the power of God in our life. Because all we're doing is we're taking by faith what Christ has already provided. Now, hopefully that's got us up to speed because that, that's a very quick run through of nine weeks worth. So, have you found Hebrews chapter 4 yet? Well, just to confuse you, I'm going to start at the, the, the last verse of chapter 3. Um, but if you found chapter 4, that shouldn't be a problem for you. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 19 says this. So, we see that they could not enter. That is, he's talking about entering into the rest of God. They could not enter the rest of God because of unbelief. And in chapter 4, go on to verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. That's, that's us. We're the people of God. For he who entered his rest as himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, whenever you use this word rest, it creates something in your mind. And I don't want to sort of uh, lack clarity on this because when it comes to physical rest, we all need physical rest. We all need mental rest. And, and rest is good for us. That sort of rest is good for us because it recharges the batteries. It gives us time to ponder things. It gives us time to mull over things. You know, in a couple of weeks' time, Cheryl and I are going off on holiday, and that'll give us time to recharge, move things over, think about a few things. And rest in that sense is a good thing. In fact, it's a God thing. He gave us the ability to rest, and he told us to rest. Now, the question, when you read passages like this that use this word rest, is should we just then sit back and do nothing? Right answer, Roger, but we need to know why. Um, because a lot of people read the, this passage about rest and they go, well, therefore, I don't have to do anything. It's all down to God. I just sit, put my feet up, pray a little bit, and God does the rest. And I, I remember quite a number of years ago now, we, we had a, a guy, he was a guest speaker, 
And he came up and it was the first, uh, first preach of the new year that year. And what he said was that um, this year, I declare he's a year of rest for everyone. And that God's saying to us, we just need to rest, let him do it. And we don't need to do anything. It's all down to God. Now, unfortunately, the way that was communicated, some people took that exactly as it was presented, down tools, came off all the rotors, and we had a crisis of volunteers. <laughs> Literally, we did. Because the, the, there was a mentality that rest means I don't have to do anything. I, I, do, I just sit. I just wait. Now, is that what God intends when he uses this word rest? Right answer, no is the answer. By the way, you know, I love it when people shout out, when they shout encouraging things, when they, they, they're with it. So I want to encourage you, even though you're in Cambridge, that you're allowed to open your mouth and say, good preach, pastor, or something like that. Amen, glory to God, anything like that. You know, pretend you're American or something like that. Amen, glory to God. Bless you, brother. You know, those sort of things. Now, Jesus, in, in this passage, what the writer's talking about, and remember, I think it's Paul, what he's talking about is rest from our works. By works, what he means is our attempts to do the things of the kingdom purely by natural means. So rest is, is uh, that works is attempts to do the things of the kingdom purely by natural means. And what he then goes on to say, he starts to talk about entering the promised land. So if you, if you go back to the start of chapter 4, this is what he says. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of us come short of it. Now, as you know, when you have that word therefore at the start of a sentence, you're supposed to look what it's there for. Yeah, we've got that one. And so we want to know what it's, it's talking about. And what, it's actually, what precedes it is this. And I'm, I'm going to read from chapter 3. There, uh, and begin at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always grow astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, that's today, Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now, what's that talking about? It all sounds really ominous. That, what that's talking about, that's a, a direct quote from Psalm 95. It's just lifted straight out of Psalm 95. And it's about the inability of Israel to go into the promised land. And, and the promised land is the place where God's promises were going to be realized. And 
the reason that it's given that they couldn't go in is because they'd hardened their hearts. They'd hardened their hearts against God. They'd seen all these incredible miracles and yet they'd ended up with a hard heart. And the, the, the writer of Psalm 95 says this, that he attributes that to, he calls it an evil heart of unbelief. In other words, the enemies got in, the world's got in, and our heart has become in believing towards God. Why did that happen? That happened because they switched putting their trust in God to putting their trust in their own ability, putting their trust in their own plans and their own desires. And because of that, their hearts progressively got harder towards God and they found it harder and harder to trust him. So when the challenge came that they were going to go into the promised land, they looked at the problem instead of looking at the God. At God. And, and the problem became big in their eyes and God got smaller in their eyes. The enemy became big in their eyes and they became small in their own eyes. It says they became grasshoppers in their own sight. And what we find out is that they couldn't go into the land, not because of the enemies, not because of the problem, not because of the giants in the land, not because they weren't strong enough. They couldn't go in for one sole reason, unbelief. Unbelief. Now, one of the, the great joys of being a pastor, and I, and I love this, is that when I'm preparing for these things, I get to read loads of commentaries. And um, it's really interesting, all the things that commentaries say about, about these passages in Hebrews. Um, but one of the, one of the common um, understandings of what these passages talking about is that, it, and, and, and again, it, it's partly our ability to narrow things down and, and make them a little bit less than they are. It's not that there's something wrong with this, it's just we, sometimes we make it a bit less. And, and a lot of commentators, they interpret this passage um, solely as relating to people who don't believe at all. So they're not Christians. In other words, they didn't enter into becoming a Christian because their hearts were hard against God. That's, that's the idea that they're talking about. And you'll find that a lot of commentaries will say that. Now, that in part is true. You know, people don't enter into what God has for them because they don't believe him. However, I don't think that's the whole of what this passage is talking about. And I'm going to like justify it to you before I go on and tell you what the implications of that are. Because I believe that what's been said is much deeper and wider than just talking about salvation. When we look at what is quoted in that Psalm 95, it's important that we look at the timing of that event. Because in the Old Testament, we have shadows of what becomes full in the new. We've talked about this earlier in the series. And so what, what we're talking about here is the children of Israel have already been saved out of slavery. They've come out out of Egypt, out from under the oppression. They've been called to meet God at Sinai and now they stood on the borders of entering into the promised land. And it's at that point they can't go in from belief. So in the, in the shadows of the Old Testament, they were already saved from the dominion of slavery and now it's an entering into what God has for them. 
And that's what, what, why he's quoting from Psalm 95. He's saying, now, guys, let, let me help you understand. I want you to get this in the right place. And, and for us, you know, if we, if we go to um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, we, we find that we have a similar situation. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So we've been delivered out of our Egypt, the power of darkness, slavery to sin, and we've been transferred into a new kingdom, which is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus. We've been transferred into a kingdom where we are no longer slaves, but family, sons and daughters who are dearly loved by God. We've been transferred into a kingdom where we are no longer helpless but we have an inheritance and promises from God that carry the power of the kingdom so wherever we go we carry the kingdom with us so we we that's a permanent thing that's a done thing it's not something that we strive for each day or we look forward to it's something that's happened already the moment you believed you were delivered from the kingdom of darkness and put in a new kingdom and that's where we live now. That's our habitation. That's our home. And Israel had been delivered from this oppression of slavery under Pharaoh. They were out of Egypt, but unfortunately, Egypt wasn't out of them. And they kept looking back. And they kept thinking, well, you know, every time something went wrong, they reverted back to that old slave mentality, that old, uh, you know, we're helpless mentality. And they stopped looking at God and started looking at their problems again. And, and that's what we're finding. And that's what this is talking about. And for us who live in this New Testament king, kingdom, the New Testament kingdom we live in, we've been delivered from that, the, the world, having to think like the world. Now, a lot of us still think like the world. There's the problem. Just like they kept looking back and kept saying, we can't do it. We carry on looking and we're going, I can't do it. I can't do this. I'm, I, I don't have the ability. Um, and we get ourselves, when we start thinking like that, we get ourselves really discouraged. And we start getting over into unbelief instead of belief. We start relying on ourselves instead of God. And we start to harden ourselves towards God because what you take in is what goes into your heart. So if you dwell on, on the impossibility things, if you dwell on the world's way of thinking, if you dwell on um, the way the world does things, if you dwell on relying solely on your own ability, it has an effect on your heart and it trains your heart to find it in, in some way you're training yourself to find it harder to believe God and it, that becomes self-fulfilling now what's really exciting about this is that those verses in Hebrews tell us that there's a rest still available to us today it doesn't matter what happened yesterday it doesn't matter where you were yesterday there's a rest available to you right now today there's you know, forget the track record, forget that you messed up yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before and you didn't trust God and you didn't believe God. Forget all that. Today, you can go into the rest. Yeah. All it requires is trusting God instead of yourself. And 
again, you know, I get, I get kind of frustrated with the, the commentators because they go, well, he's, he's talking about heaven. Well, I'm not planning on going to heaven today. I'd just like you to know that. <laughs> if it happens, I'm sure I'll be really happy, but I'm not planning on going there today. So I believe what the rest this is talking about is a state of our heart where we surrender to the leading of the Spirit and we put our trust in God as we go about the business of the kingdom. So surrender to the leading of the Spirit, put your trust in God and go about the business of the kingdom. Now, let me put that a different way in case that was a little bit complicated. Our rest is trusting God so that we get to take advantage of the finished work of Christ. Just like they were stood on the borders of going into the promised land, for us, this isn't a question of salvation. It's a question of taking hold of the promises of God and seeing them manifest in our life. And you cannot take hold of the promises of God by your own merits and your own effort. The only way you take hold of the promises of God is by faith. And so we enter our promised land, which is the fullness of everything Christ did to give, gave to give us, the fullness of Christ living through us, the fullness of the Holy Spirit moving in our life and through us and affecting lives around us. We enter into that by belief. And so we have to guard our hearts against unbelief. We have to guard our hearts against falling back on our own limited abilities and trusting God, training our hearts to trust God. So how's this work? Let me, let me, I'm going to work through a couple of, I guess, examples. I'm, I'm not meaning to be controversial, but as you know, I sometimes am. So if you find it controversial, sorry in advance, really, sorry. But I'm still going to say it, okay? Here's, here's the situation. One of the things that you can do as a church leader, and it, you know, it's doing your job properly, is you can get really concerned about how your church grows. Now, that's okay, because... We do want to impact more people and reach more people with the truth of the gospel. You know, I want to see more and more people understand who they are in Christ, understand what they have in Christ, understand the finished work of the cross, understand that they are saved by grace through faith. And I want them to know God's unconditional love because for a vast part of the church, they don't. And so it's not wrong for us to want to see more people hear and, and understand the things that we're getting hold of. That, that's, that's okay. But I read these books on church growth strategies, and, and some, of it's, some of it's good stuff, you know. But you can really easily get the impression that the power of the gospel is dependent on things like finances, effective management, organisational structures, uh, availability of parking, no, you, you don't, one of the most famous books in church growth, uh, all, all about the 10 real core things you need to grow a church. Number seven in the list is available parking. 
And, and so it's really interesting what people think grows churches. Now, the sad thing is, it does. It does, because we, we, we can train people to um, be part of a crowd. Now, here's, here's the point I'm trying to get to. Don't get me wrong on this. I do not want to go back to the days of holding a church meeting in one of those musty old rooms that smells of damp, and you turn up and you get half warm tea, some soggy biscuits that are out of date, and everything's broken and dusty and smells horrible. And I just don't want to do that. That's not honouring to God in this day and age. It's, we want to do things really well. But we don't want to substitute doing things really well for the power of God. You want both. And I don't have a problem with lights. I don't have a problem with video screens because we've got video screens and we've got lights. But I don't want us to get to the place where we rely on those in order to grow faith life rather than relying on God in order to change lives. Because change lives is the goal, not number growth. Because change lives, change lives. Number growth just grows numbers. And, and, and so we have a different goal. Now, I want you to, to see this. I'm not just like going off on one. All I am going off on one, a little bit. Because I feel passionate about this. I feel passionate that, that, that we, we invest in the right place and that we, we believe in what we're doing. And I believe in what we're doing. That, and, and I talked to our area leaders group on, on Thursday, Friday, Friday about what we're doing and why we do it. Our core values. And, and about loving each other and about being family and about discipleship being, being focused on the person rather than just focusing on how do we grow this organisation. Because <coughs> as far as I'm concerned, Faith Life isn't an organisation, it's people. Yeah. And it's you guys. And I'm sure you don't think of yourself as an organisation, you think of yourself as a living, breathing person who is after the heart of God. And that's the way it should be. And so, you know, I'm just thinking, like, what would the disciples do if they were, like, now? And we have this situation. You see, you've got, you've got the disciples, and you, you've got Peter and James and John and Andrew and Matthew and all the rest of them. And they, they've, they've been on this journey with Jesus, and they've, you know, they've raised the dead. They've healed the sick. They've cleansed the leper. They've cast out demons. Not just once, multiple occasions. They've, they, they've seen bread, you know, a few loaves and fishes feed 5,000 from their own hands. One of them's even walked on water in the middle of a storm. They've seen dead people come out of tombs. And, and they, they come along and Jesus is going to go back up to heaven. Now, you would think that those guys were ready. You would, wouldn't you? Like, if you'd seen all that, wouldn't you have thought, that's enough? Like, if we saw that in every Bible school that we, we had in the land, or any Bible schools we had in the land, we'd think we were on onto something. And yet Jesus tells them, hang on a minute, guys, you're not going anywhere. I don't want you going off building my church like that. You see, if I'd been them, you know, if, if you apply your, 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 like, I don't know, human mind to this you've got a perfect setup haven't you you know you've got like you know you've got Matthew 
hey, Matthew, you're in charge of finances. You're treasurer. Okay? You can understand all them tax things. And then Peter, Peter's the evangelist. We're going to roll him out for the guest services. And now, now what we need, John, John. Now, this is, this is John. You, you're really important. You're in charge of pastoral because you're such a loving guy. And you were the one that sat next to Jesus all the time. You know, you've got the heartbeat, John. You, you're the one. And, and you know, our, you know, we're lacking something. We're lacking those programs. We need to put the programs in place. Now, I know somebody, Luke. Now, that, that Luke guy, he's got like the mind to put programs together, document it all. He's the guy. We'll get him out. And, and what, what, what about somebody else? Oh, you know, I've got it. Jesus' brother, James. Now, he, he wanted to come for us for a job, didn't he? But the problem was the salary. Now, if we could just get the salary right, that'd do us some good, wouldn't we? Because we'd have the family connection. We'd be like the one. We've got, we've got the brother. And if only that, that Saul guy would just stop hounding us and give us a bit of space, we could sort out the temple. We could take it over. We could put some new speakers up there and we'd be away. Can you see them building this, the church? Jesus says, no. You must not do anything without the power of my spirit. And I think that's where it comes down to today. Because we have learned to do something without the power of the spirit. Whether it's what God wants us to do or not, or the fullness of what he wants us to do is a different question. So we have to have the power of the Spirit. Because if the disciples were told not to do it without the power of the Spirit, why do we think we can do it? You know, the last time I looked, I have tried it a few times, but I have so far not managed to walk on water. Actually, I know it disappoints you a bit, but I haven't. So why do I think that I can do something that Peter couldn't do when he had done all those things? Why do I think that, what, what, how, how have I got my heart in a place that takes the Holy Spirit right out of things and says that's okay? Anyway, that's my controversial bit for this morning. Well, the first one of them. You see, I believe that we, as individuals and as bodies of Christ, we fail to enter this rest that is getting talked about here because we've missed or neglected the necessity of moving in the power of God. And great as it is, social media, the internet, and presentation skills are not the power of God. Now, I don't want us to get the idea that what we should do is we should go back to, well, we don't need to plan anything, you don't need sermons, you know, you don't last minute sermons will do, nicking somebody else's sermon will do, it's all fine, you know, just as long as we put something on. No, you don't want to do that. You want to hear God and communicate that for who we are. You want God, you want to connect with God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, we talked a little bit about that last week. In one sense, faith isn't risk-free, is it? 
It's not risk-free. You know, the thing about faith is it exists in a place and only in a place which is beyond our ability to do. If it's within our ability to do, it's not faith. Faith exists in a realm called the impossible to us. And therefore, if we step out, on, out in faith, the natural corollary of that stepping out beyond what we can do is it raises the possibility we might fall flat on our face. So faith isn't risk-free. Faith requires us to put in ourselves in a position where people can turn around and go, look at that idiot. So if we, if, if we sensitize our hearts to that sort of criticism, if, if that's what we, we hear, we, put, we, we end up, because of that risk element, hardening our hearts into an area of unbelief. Because we're sensitizing our hearts to the, it's not possible, but sensitizing our hearts to, what if I fall flat on my face? What will people say? And, and we, we can't, you know, for me, who cares? A lot of people have said a lot of things about me over the years. A lot of people have said a lot of things that, that might have been true at one time but a, a lot of things that weren't true. But here's, here's the main thing. I'm not interested in what they had to say. I'm interested in what God has to say about me. And he's got a lot of things to say about me. And he says that I can go beyond myself. I can see things that are not possible to me. And I can step into the fullness of my inheritance. So I'm choosing to believe him, not what people have said about me. So I want to sensitize my heart to him, don't I? And so that, that's what we want to do. We want to sensitize our heart to God and get out, of, get, get out of the way this thing that it matters what people say about me. Now, I know it matters what people say to, about you, but it's not going to matter as much what they say about you as when God sa says, well done, good and faithful servant, when you stood in front of him. You're not going to be interested in what they said at that point. And so I want to sensitize my heart to the things of God. Now, in, one, in that sense, faith carries some risk. But in another sense, faith isn't risky at all. Have you thought of it like that? It does not take a lot of faith to believe in the one who cannot fail. Let me say that again. It doesn't take a lot of faith to believe in the one who cannot fail. What it takes is a refocusing of our thinking, of our understanding. To, to, like I said last week, to know God, that he's the promiser that stands behind the promises. That he's the one we're trusting. We're not trying to believe something out there. We're trying to, to get the heart of God, to really get the heart of God, to know. And, and, and the more we know him and the more we know how much he loves us and the more we know how much he loves us, irrespective of our own messes, then more we can trust him. So our goal is to get to know him. And when we get to know him, we'll realise it doesn't take much faith to trust the one who cannot fail. Amen? Amen. Yeah, good. Can, can, we just, can we just learn from Rosie? So if I go, amen, you go, amen. amen. Right, let's try it over this side. Amen. amen. Right, we're getting there. Let's keep going. Okay. Let me... Let me uh, let me tell you a story. This is my second story. I'm, I'm my last story. Um, I guess, I can't remember what it's like. 
maybe three, four years ago now, um, I was uh, involved in organising an event. It was a cross-church event. And in this event, um, some, some of you might remember it. In fact, I remember, I remember Andrew being there. And we did this cross-church event because I was the chaplain of the local shopping centre. And we did it for Pentecost. So I thought, as it's Pentecost, we perhaps we should talk about something like the power of God, you know, as opposed to just putting on something. Now, that's not always easy when you're doing something cross-church. But what, what, what we did was, um, towards the end of that meeting, I get, get, got up and gave a testimony. And the testimony was something that happened to me only, I guess, two weeks before that. And what happened is that I was doing one of my um, campaigns to uh, improve my physique. So I decided this was a cycling campaign. And I, I was going out on, on my bike for, for a cycle ride. And I, I was coming along the road, just up there, a long road. And a car went past me really, really fast, really close. I came off my bike, straight up in the air, landed on my knee and my elbow, smashed my knee, uh, and uh, just basically sheared off my entire elbow. And so... Luck would have it that if you come in a long, long road, that you were at the back gate of the hospital. That's kind of handy, isn't it? And, and so I, I was quickly in A&E. And it, so I'm telling this testimony. And in between getting to A&E and coming off my bike, I'd done one thing, which is to put my finger, hands there to feel what was going on with my knee. And, and basically, I, put, I know this is gruesome. You can capture it on camera. I put my knee in there and it sunk in between two separate pieces of my kneecap. So my kneecap had just split right down the middle. And so went into um, the hospital. I'm in A&E. The doctor examines it all and, you know, you get the... <sighs> we're going to have to clean... Ooh, we're gonna, it's going to be a tough one. Yeah, I've got to clean that before you can go for an X-ray. And, and so she did all the like stuff like and scrubbing it and cleaning it and... And um, Cheryl, who was, was out, then had got the message by then. She came in and she prayed for me. And um, this doctor then sent me for an x-ray. And so I went, had the x-ray and um, came back. And then this doctor came through and, and she was like, I'm really sorry about this, but I'm going to have to send you back for another x-ray. Because they've taken it from the wrong angle. Because... Uh, the angle that they've taken it from isn't showing what I've seen and I've just cleaned out. And so they sent me, this is so funny, they sent me back down this corridor for, for this um, x-ray and have it done again. And, and it's kind of like, we, we're not going to get it wrong this time. So I had like 20 x-rays. Like, <laughs> like, let's put it up on a block so that it can get underneath and do it. And so she comes back and she goes, I haven't, you know, I don't, I, I don't understand this because these x-rays aren't showing what I've seen. So I'm just going to stitch you up and send you home. So she stitched this, the, the skin up and sent me home. And I thought, this is great. And, and so I'm excited at this point. But in sending me home, the, the other x-rays were with my elbow 
And basically, it take, you know, the, the, the actual elbow, that, that had been taken off. And all the, you have this, like a, a lubrication bag under there and it had burst and it, it had burst. And the thing was a mess. So I, I, they, sent, they sent me home in a sling. They've got the x-ray showing it's all broken and there's bits of bone and stuff in there. And so they sent me home for a few days and then they're going to get me back in and decide whether they've got to operate to fix this. So I've got, I've got this in a sling. And... Uh, couple of days of me feeling sorry for myself in in bed thinking well god's healed my knee but he's done nothing about my elbow and don't don't understand that and um oh yeah so the exciting thing in the meantime was that i actually stood up in church and preached a whole sermon on this knee that had been smashed on on the sunday the intervening sunday but i've still got this this elbow thing going on and bless her esther came out so if you're not here this morning, I can be, I can say what I like about her. But Esther comes around and she goes, and she, and she comes, I think it's Travel put her up to it, to be honest. Yeah, she's looking guilty. She had sent, sent her up, sent her up to, and she said, right, I, I've got Esther around. So Esther comes in, and for, for, for a little lady, she's, she's scary. And, and she comes in, she goes, right, we're not having this. How can you lie there when you've been to Andrew Womack's Bible school? You know this isn't acceptable. <laughs> yes, Esther. <laughs> you know this isn't acceptable. So I want you to, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for you and you're going to move that arm no matter how much pain you're in. Right, Esther. <laughs> so she prays for it. She goes, right, out that sling now. Move it. I'm going, and I'm going, I can't move it. <laughs> she said, move it. And so I started to move it, and it was agony. And I moved it, and I moved it, and the pain went. And the elbow was restored. Now, if any of you want to come and have a feel of my elbow, you will find it is there. Now, that's really funny, because that was sheared off. But it's there. Amen. Yeah, see, there you go. So I give, I give this testimony and then I ask people to come forward who want prayer for healing and all that sort of stuff. And we've got people running around the building after we've prayed for like wobbly knees and all sorts of things. And, and at the end of it, I'm talking to another pastor from uh, another church leader and we're having this conversation. And the conversation goes, oh, that, that's an amazing testimony, Matt. That's, that's just fantastic, you know. I, I, I think it's wonderful what God does. And he said, but, you know, I, I couldn't, I, I sort of challenged him a little bit. And, and he said, well, I couldn't do that in my church. And I said, well, you really need to, you know, if you don't pay for healing, you're not going to see any healing. And, and, he, and this, is, this is what he said, and I'll, I'll kind of quote it to you. He said, because so, I wrote it down afterwards because I was really shocked. Well, shocked in a, like, made me think way. That was a great testimony. Thanks for sharing. But for myself, I just can't go where you go with this whole faith thing. And I said, well, if God will do it for me, they'll do it for anyone. Because there's nothing special about any of us. And I said, why can't you go there? Why can't you go there? And this is the response. Because not everyone we pray for is healed. 
So if I pay for people at the front of church or I encourage people to come forward for prayer and they're not healed, my church will lose confidence in me and leave. I can't tell people it's just faith because they'll get disillusioned and disappointed when they're not healed. What if God doesn't heal them? And I'm going like, I could do with some wisdom kind of like now, God. And this is what he dropped in my spirit. He said, what if I do? What if I do? What changes if I do? You know, so often we go to God, even, you know, sometimes I have to pull myself up doing it myself. What if, and you're having this thing, what if God doesn't do it? And every time I get that popping in my head now, I go, what if he does? Yeah. What if he does? You see, it's not our job to get God to fulfill his promises. It's our job to believe his promises, to believe him, lay hands on the sick and expect them to get healed. It's not our job when we pay for people to be healed to make it work. And, and, you know, I know stuff goes on in your head. I know stuff still goes on in my head sometimes. But it's not my job to get it to work. You see, my reputation is not, like, unlike the way that other guy was thinking, my reputation is not on the line at all. If I've got the right mindset, my reputation is not on the line at all. I, I, because, you know, honestly, I've never supernaturally healed anybody in my life. And I don't think anybody else has here. God did the healing. All I did was lay hands on and believe him. It's absolutely nothing to do with me. So I'm not bothered because it's not down to me. And I, I'm kind of like, well, I think God's big enough to look after his own reputation. You see, healing, like everything else, comes as we enter the rest of God, which is stopping relying on our own works and trusting in him, in the finished works of Christ. You see, it's so important we don't take our historic experience as a decider of what God will do. We, we, we've got too used to bringing God's word down to the level of our experience instead of striving to take our experience up to the level of God's word. And they're two really different things. Here's a little line, because I know you like my one-liners and, and things. The facts, F-A-C-T-S, facts, not one of them facts things. The facts do not change the truth. But the truth will change the facts. Faith doesn't operate in the realm of the possible. It operates in the realm of the impossible. So the facts that we uh, see are subject to change. They are subject to change. Anything that, that is going on in our lives right at this moment is subject to change. And the thing that brings about the change is the application of the truth of God's word as we believe it. And that's what brings change. It brings change in our bodies. It brings change in the way we think. It, became, it, it moves despair to hope. 
It moves unforgiveness to forgiveness. It moves uh, bitterness to love. It moves broken bodies and makes them whole. It, it sets people free from oppression because everything is subject to change because it's subject to the word of God. And in the hands of somebody who believes God, that is powerful. That is a change agent. And when we apply faith to what God has said, it sets off a reaction that produces change. Amen, yeah, amen, amen. Smith Wigglesworth said this, he said, I am not moved by what I feel, I'm not moved by what I hear. I am not moved by what I see. I am only moved by what I believe and I believe the word of God. And that, that's kind of where we, we, where we need to be. And we, when we get there, we have to stay there. You see, what this just coming back to this thing about healing, I'm nearly done, so you know, if you if you sort of falling asleep, this is your time to wake up. If any of you like I haven't got to yet yet, this is your time to wake up. But this is what Cheryl have I, I have learned about when we pray for healing. That not everybody we've prayed for has yet been healed. But a lot of people have. Like prayed for Brian. He's got a bad back. Had a bad back this morning. He's, we prayed for him. He's moving it around. It's getting better. Are you there yet? Or are you still working on it? Stand up and wiggle it about then. Let's... Yeah, do you see? Yeah, that, that's, it's coming on. Yeah, it's a good wiggle. Nice wiggle. Yeah, we'll give him six out of ten for that wiggle. And the way, the way it's like this is that this is the big, big thing we've learned. That if we pray... Because we haven't got yet this total revelation in our head in every circumstance. We're still sometimes like those disciples who looked at the little boy throwing himself in the fire and having the fit. And we go, oh, that's too big for me. But we're on this journey and we're seeing more and more. Here's what we've learned. If you don't pray for anybody, nobody gets healed. So you've got this choice. Do I not pray for anybody? in which case we accept nobody gets healed? Or do we pray and expect God to step come, come through so that we see more and more people healed? Because if we stop praying, nobody gets healed. And, and we, we've had to learn that. We've had to learn that through a few defeats and a lot of victories. But we have to keep trusting God and not letting this heart of unbelief form in ourselves. We have to keep entering the rest instead of coming back to our own works. I just want to finish with this. Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Some translations don't use that word diligent. They use a different uh, word for the, the original Greek word. And I, I, like, I, like, I like this. It says... Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The only thing we strive for in Christianity is to enter the rest of the finished work of Christ. And it says strive because it acknowledges it's not an easy thing. It's, it's, it's something that is a constant battle and you can slip back from it. You know, you, you can fall back as, it, as this is talking about. So we have to strive to get our mind set on what Christ can do and away from what we can do. Um, I, I, 
the reason I like this, this I, I just like the Greek word. Here it is, it's spudazo. <laughs> spudazo. I like that. It's kind of like a northern Greek word. <laughs> it's the sort of word that, that we would have come up with in Cumbria if we'd invented Greek. Spudazo. And, and I like it because what it means is to exert yourself. So we've got to exert ourselves to enter the rest. It's not going to come easy. It's not going to be without challenge. You see, the reason we've got to exert ourselves to enter it is that every single thing you see on the TV, everything you read in a magazine, everything that comes through in books, everything you see on social media, it's against it. So you've got to exert yourself to enter the rest. You, you, you know, you've, the, the other meaning of spedazzo is to strain every nerve. Why? Because a lost, sick, hurting, dying world needs people who will enter the rest. It needs people who will bring the kingdom. It needs people who will fight the fight of faith and win victories for them on their behalf that they cannot win for themselves. Because we are carriers of the kingdom to others who have not yet entered it themselves, who are not yet there themselves, who are not yet walking in the level of faith where they can believe for themselves. We, We are carriers of the kingdom and a lost, dying and hurting world needs us to get our act together and enter the rest and trust God. Hasten. Yeah, get a move on. You know, we really, I don't know how to put this. The hopes of people that we know are bound up in how we respond to God's word. So we can't afford to take God's word lightly. Because they need us to sensitize our hearts to God. They need us to believe God's word. So when we, when we hear the word, when we hear preaching, when we come to church, that's why it's so important that we come. That's why it's so important we hear. And it's so important we consistent. Because I don't know if this whole series makes sense if you've only been here one week in four. I don't know. I, you kind of hope everything stands itself. But for changing our hearts to take place, it's not like that. It's a cumulative thing. It's called renewing your mind. And so therefore, you've got to be under the word. You've got to meditate on the word. You've got to hear the word. You've got to do it consistently. You've got to mull it over. You've got to think about it. And so... For us to enter the rest, we need to get that into our life. We, you know, we need to not be a, a McDonald's fast food generation of believers. We need like that slow cooker approach. Yeah. Because yeah? a stew contains a lot more richness than a McDonald's <laughs> burger. Honestly, it does. And a lot more goodness. And, and is that Christianity is best done as a, as a slow cooker than it is as fast food. Everybody stand. <laughs>